This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking With Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. We're still back with you after an unplanned hiatus due to the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. After the initial weeks of the global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the great content you've come to expect. Today, our author is an award-winning, number one New York Times bestselling creator of over 20 novels, Chris Bajolian. We spoke with him via Zoom in April of 2020 about his book, The Red Lotus, by publisher Knopf Doubleday. This Vermont-based writer has been a published novelist since 1995, and like most writers, he gets ideas from his own experiences and hobbies. With the oddly prescient and timely The Red Lotus, after he figured out that part of the locale would be in Southeast Asia, he turned one of his pastimes into research to help him fill in his story. But I am an avid cyclist. I bike about 3,500 miles a season. And when I knew that this book was going to be set at least partly in Vietnam, I knew I should see Vietnam on a bike. So I went on a bike tour and it was so wonderful for the book because I met people in ways I would never have met people on just a tour. And he mixed that trip with interviews with emergency room doctors and epidemiologists to come up with the thriller that provides mystery in the characters and a knowing fear for the reader since we are all now in the middle of a global pandemic. Author Chris Bajalian joins us now on this edition of Talking With Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Angie Weidinger. Chris Bajalian, thank you so much for joining us from the comfort of your Vermont home, I'm guessing, is that right? You are seeing me in my library. I'm sorry that I'm joining you virtually rather than in person at one of my absolute favorite libraries. How would you give a quick synopsis of The Red Lotus? What is your quick... Red Lotus is the story of Alexis Remnick, a New York City ER doctor who goes on a bike tour of Vietnam with her new boyfriend and he disappears. And in his absence, she realizes that so much that he had told her was a lie, and she may be in spectacular amounts of danger from, among other things, a new deadly pathogen. So that, this new deadly pathogen, I mean, what, what is it like to release this book about a pathogen that could potentially cause a pandemic during a pandemic? What is that like for you? First of all, it was, a, it was a terrible month to publish a book, to be a recording artist, to be a stage actor. I mean, I'm gonna be fine. It's my 21st book as you observed, but I feel so terrible for all of those novelists who are publishing their first book in March or their second book in March, thought that this was their breakout book. It's now April. 
and bookstores are beginning to figure out how to work in this new environment. But in March, it was all new, it was all devastating. Then there's this. I didn't feel guilty that I wrote a book about a possible pandemic that happened to be published on March 17th, right when we were beginning to shelter in place and shut down. It's not as if I ate a bat. It's not <laughs> as if I'm responsible for this. But, but, I like my books to be filled with heartbreak and dread and to keep you turning the pages because they are in some ways an escape. Because they are what allowing you to hear a different story. When you are reading The Red Lotus, and I love The Red Lotus, it is one of my favorite books I've written. I'm so proud of it. But you can't help, as so many readers who've read it told me, think of the news. Absolutely. You can help, but have your stomach lurch like you're in a plane that has just fallen 10,000 feet in a minute when you're beginning to understand what this book is actually about. If there's karma, my next book needs to be about a cure for a horrific illness. Well, there you go. And, 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 and I know that there are parts of your book where they are trying to work on that, I think. <laughs> Maybe the good people are trying to work on oh, it. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I had so much fun interviewing scientists for this book who work developing vaccines. They're fascinating. That's where I learned all about knock-in mice and knock-out mice and knock-in rats and knock-out rats and transgenic rats and how you basically create a vaccine. It was really interesting. I loved the science. Is it true that this idea all started with a couple of newspaper articles that you read about mice and rats? Yeah. The Red Lotus had its origins in April of 2018. I read two articles, one in the New York Times, one in the New York Post. The New York Times article was about eight different kinds of antibiotic bacteria found in New York City mice that were transmittable to humans. The New York Post article was about the nine apartments in New York City which have had the most rat complaints. And I thought about these two articles and picked up the phone and called a fellow at Echo Health Alliance who was quoted in the New York Times story, Dr. Peter Daszak. He's an epidemiologist. Now, I didn't see this pandemic coming, but I'm sure Peter did. Peter observed that New York City is an extremely worrisome possible ground zero for a pandemic. High population density, people depending on mass transportation, and lots of people coming and going. That was when I first had the notion that there might be an interesting book in an ER doctor and a possible biological weapon or pandemic. Wow. See, I read those articles and go, oh, rats, can't <laughs> you see story potential. So, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the characters. Two of your characters in the book are from St. Louis. Now, they're kind of secondary. They're on the bike tour. But immediately I noticed 
one of them worked for a pharmaceutical company. And of course I start thinking, oh my goodness, we're talking about Agent Orange. Bayer is a pharmaceutical company which bought Monsanto, which produced Agent Orange. Was that on purpose that you did that or, or was my brain just thinking locally what I know? Your brain was thinking brilliantly. Your brain was... Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, it, was going, it was going to be one of those possible red herrings I was going to use um, with Alexis looking back on everyone on the bike tour and what they might, how they might have been involved with Austin. Yeah. But I, I ended up not using that because it was just slowing down the pace of the narrative. So let me ask them, when you are going through your writing process, do you, have, do you outline or how do you have all these characters developing? I do not use an outline. You don't? I have no idea where my books are going when I start them. I depend on my characters to take me by the hand and lead me through the dark of the story. Wow. So I started this book. I didn't even know, other than Douglas Weber, who you learn in chapter three or chapter four is a bad guy, who the bad guys were. So tell me, tell me about these, the characters' names. Where do those come from? Are those people you know, names you've picked up? Where, where do, how do you name your people? You know, sometimes my characters come from fundraisers for libraries, hospitals, hospices. For example, there's at least one character in The Red Lotus who is a character named for a fundraiser for the St. Louis County Library. Oh, really? Who is that? I don't remember which character it is. It might be, I'm sorry, I don't remember which character it is. Um, my characters come from, especially the 21st book. You know, they come from right. the phone book. They come from the baby book. Sometimes I will spin around in my chair, you'll see the books behind me, and I will say, gosh, I haven't had a character named Joyce in a while, or a character named Stephen in a while, or character named Julie or Angie or Christina in a while. Wow. Well, if you come up, if you, if you find out what that name is from St. Louis, please let me know. I'll make sure cool. to, to call it out because that's really interesting. I love it. Um, so I, I want to talk to you about some of your other writing techniques that I've, I've seen that maybe, maybe or maybe not you still use. Is it true that sometimes you watch movie trailers to kind of find a character's voice that you might be working on? I do watch movie trailers. I watch them relentlessly. Now I watch TV series trailers as well. It's not necessarily to find a character's voice. It's to get into an emotional space because those two and three minute movie trailers are impeccably produced to hit an emotional chord. Usually there's an emotional chord for each character. It's not a voice, but it's a, a sensibility. And I'll, I'll give you a sense when it was most precise. When I was writing The Guest Room, I watched the following trailers all the time. Birdman, written by Alexander Dinalera, starring Michael Keaton, so I could always understand Richard Chapman, the father um, in The Guest Room, who just once, wants to do something right, and wants to make up for all the mistakes he's made. Mm -hmm. I watched the trailer for Cake, an indie film starring Jennifer Aniston, so I could understand his wife, Kristen Chapman's pain. I watched 
boyhood so I could watch, so I could see how their daughter, Melissa, sees her parents changing as she's growing up. So interesting. Did you watch any in particular for The Red Lotus? Um, for The Red Lotus, I would have to think back on the ones that were most important to me, but I will tell you that one I watched a lot um, was Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Why? Something about um, the subconscious and something about the sense of mystery that is surrounding Alexis and all of the things that she doesn't understand. Very good. I've also read somewhere that you, you have a whiteboard with potential endings. Is that true? It is true. And that whiteboard got a real workout with the flight attendant oh, and yeah. the Red Lotus. Because the Red Lotus could have ended a lot of different ways. And I'm not going to talk about the ending because I don't want to spoil it. Right. We don't want that. Yeah. I do love endings that are Aristotelian. You get to the last page and you think, oh my God, I did not expect it to end that way. And then you think, but it couldn't have ended any other way. The perfect Aristotelian ending is surprising and inevitable. And that's what the whiteboards are for, to, to try to get there. So how many different endings did you try out for, for say, the Red Lotus? Do you recall? Many. Many? Many. Wow. Um, it was probably um, exponential in its own way when I was thinking, who is going to live? Who is going to die? I mean, I must have rewrote the, changed the epilogue at least four times. Oh, Wow. And, and that's something else that I, that I, I, I heard you say somewhere that you, you take a, a note from Ernest Hemingway and, and when you write, is, is that true that you start each day by rewriting? Correct. And that's from Ernest Hemingway? That is, Ernest Hemingway taught me two things, not personally. Right. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, I'm writing. The first is always begin by rewriting what you wrote the day before. The last 200 words, last 400 words. First of all, you're editing. You're making it better. Secondly, you're getting reacquainted with the material. And third, it acts as a runway. Imagine your narrative as an airplane. And as you are rewriting, you are taking off. Yeah, that's great advice. So it, it, I imagine helps with the writer's block. It doesn't sound like you get writer's block very often then. I don't. Yeah, that's that's... So interesting. If I have writer's block, it means I haven't done my homework and I need to do some research. I gotcha. And, and words, it sounds like you really, um, you love words and try to incorporate new ones quite, quite often, right? I do. I do the other part of my morning ritual in addition to watching trailers in my 8.4 ounce can of sugar-free Red Bull. <laughs> it's going to my massive library size dictionary and just picking out a few words I've never used before. Noctivigant, luminescent, and seeing if I can use them that day. I can't always because you just can't shoehorn the word noctivigant. <laughs> but when you can, it's glorious. There were a couple though in, uh, in the Red Lotus that I had to look up, which is always fun because then it's a new word that you know, you, or a word that you, you just hadn't thought of in a while. That's kind of fun. Thank you. I love yeah. that too when I'm reading a book and I think to myself, 
I've never seen that word used that way or good God, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> I love it. I, I discover a new word. It's great. It's great. Chris Bajalian on how he hones his craft and keeps trying to expand his knowledge when writing so that he gets better and better. In just a bit, he'll tell us about how he knows that he's come a long way from his very first novel, one that he's not very proud of. It's terribly written. It's badly researched. It's a ridiculous ending. It is, it's just a horrific book. It's, everything about it is just amateurish. But 20 books later, he certainly sees himself as a pro now. Novels, TV shows, plays, and hobbies are subjects we'll touch on as our talk continues with Chris Pajalian on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. So this is your 21st book, is that right? That's right. So, and I've read that you've had, I think with the paperbacks and um, all your releases, you've had 39 releases of, of publications of books. So this has to rank up there as one of the strangest <laughs> because of this world that we're living in now. It does. It does. I mean, I, I had books published on, not kidding, 9-11. Yes, 9-11. I had a book published the day after the Boston Marathon bombing. And I had a book published the day before we invaded Iraq in 2003. This is certainly the most emotionally wrenching of all of them. I wouldn't have said that on March 17th because... On March 17th, I still thought 9-11 would always be the most horrific day ever. Um, but the, the gradual sense of loss, globally, nationally, locally, the stories from inside the hospitals in New York City or Italy, it's just heartbreaking. It is. It really is. Has it been hard for you, especially with this book, or, or maybe... Maybe giving maybe it's easier since it gives a little insight into emergency rooms and kind of the things that doctors go go through. Is it how does this book fall into our world that we're living in? I was fascinated by the ER doctors I interviewed when I was researching this novel. ER doctors are a special breed. First of all, they're great multitaskers. They will have six, seven, eight cubicles going on at one time. Secondly, they're really empathetic. They always see us at our worst because no one puts on the calendar 10 a.m. Thursday, emergency room. Right. So when they see us, our breath is toxic. We are in serious pain or we're really scared. The other thing that's amazing to me about ER doctors is they always have a great sense of humor. Even now, even after all they are enduring. I mean, prior to the novel coronavirus pandemic, if you asked an ER doctor for the strangest, funniest thing they'd ever seen, instantly they would tell you about an inappropriate object in a human orifice, which very often they are out of an x-ray of on their telephone. <laughs> they would tell you about getting the Barbie doll stiletto out of the little girl's nostril. 
they would tell you how many Legos they had once seen in a little boy's stomach. Um, and now, of course, they're just the front line. Mm-hmm. They're just so heroic. ER doctors, ER nurses, all our healthcare workers, I just bow before them. Very good. You know, in, in, in researching your book, I, I'm sure you, I've read that there were several things that went into your research and you do quite a bit of research before jumping into any of your, any of your books when writing them, but you are an avid cyclist as well, I, I've, I've read. Did you go on a ride today? I didn't today. It's only about 32 degrees in Vermont. Okay. I did the, the other Vermont pandemic quarantine thing I do when I can't ride my bike. I got out my chainsaw and I cut down some trees. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting... But I, but I am an avid cyclist. I bike about 3,500 miles a season in Vermont every year. And when I knew that this book was going to be set at least partly in Vietnam, I knew I should see Vietnam the way I see my beloved Vermont on a bike. So I went on a bike tour and it was so wonderful for the book because I met people in ways I would never have met people on just a tour. You're, you're 21 books in, you're a New York Times bestseller, you've had a lot of success with your books, but it wasn't like that at the beginning. You, I, I think I've, I've heard you say that your first book was <laughs> the worst first book by an author. Was that a killing in a real world? Single worst first novel ever published. <laughs> Why do you say that? It's terribly written. It's badly researched. It's a ridiculous ending. It is, it's just a horrific book. It's, everything about it is just amateurish. But, you could, but, but the point is that you can move on from that. And, and, and that wasn't even Chris Bajalian then. It was Christopher A., right? <laughs> Bad and pretentious. Just a terrible doubleheader. Things have changed. Things, things change. I mean, I even read that at the beginning you had 250 rejections. Is that right? To, to become a writer? Not trying to drudge up bad things. I'm just trying to give people hope. No, I mean, it's true. I amassed 250 rejection slips before ever selling a word. They were for very Scott Fitzgerald-esque short stories. And I remember when I got the 250th one thinking to myself, huh, plan A, not working. Right. Time to try plan B. And at the time, Cosmopolitan was publishing a lot of fiction. So I rounded up six months worth of Cosmopolitans and read them thoroughly to try and understand what constituted a Cosmo short story. And then I wrote one. It's about a female supermodel who lives in lower Manhattan in a spectacular loft. She's married to a fabulously wealthy arbitrage trader, but their marriage is a little bit dicey. So one weekend she goes out to their equally cool beach house on Fire Island, the Atlantic Ocean, to see if the marriage can be saved but instead spends the entire time playing scantily clad beach volleyball, Cosmopolitan bought it. First story I ever sold. And then, much to my astonishment, when it was in print, literary agents started approaching me, and they all wanted to know if I had a novel. And I didn't, which was ironic because I loved novels more than short stories, always, but prodded on by one agent, I gave up the immediate gratification of the short story to write a novel, and a year later I had one, and it sold right away. Terrible book, but 
you know, it was the late 1980s. Jay McInerney, Tama Janowitz, Brett Easton Ellis. You set a book in New York City, you have some drugs, and boom, it's going to sell. Here's the great footnote to the single worst first novel ever published, bar none. It is one blurb on the back. At the time, I was working for a New York City ad agency, and there was one other writer there. He published four or five books at the time. So I asked if he would please blurb the book for me, and he did. The blurb on the back of A Killing in the Real World? James Patterson. <laughs> you guys were in a good spot together then, I guess. That ad agency saw something good in both of you. Well, it sure saw something good in him. He was really good at what he did in advertising. <laughs> That's great. Those are such great stories. Um, you, you had a couple of your books turned into movies. And now HBO Max is turning The Flight Attendant into, it's a limited series, is that right? Eight hours, limited series. Um, the executive producer and godmother of the project is the unbelievably talented and brilliant Kaylee Cuoco. She's got a great team. Steve Yawkey is the showrunner and a, a, just a wonderful playwright and writer. The cast includes Sasha Mamet, um, Mikhail Hoisman, Meryl Dandridge, Rosie Perez, T.R. Knight, Colin Woodall. I'm just, I'm just gobsmacked by the talent. So have you been involved in it at all? Or, or is it that one of those things that once they buy the rights to it, that's the end of your, your job with that? My job is done. And they don't need me. They're so talented. You know, Greg Berlanti and um, I'm Sarah Schechter, the producers, yeah. um, they were almost done filming when they needed to shut down because of the pandemic. So it probably will not begin airing this summer as planned because they need to finish up the filming. But when I was on set for a day, I was just mesmerized by how good Kaylee Cuoco is. First of all, I knew she would be perfect as Cassie Bowden, my alcoholic hot mess of a flight attendant. When I watched her on set, I was just thrilled with the fact that she was breaking my heart. She is so good as Cassie. She is so perfect as Cassie, and her acting chops are just off the scale. That has to be exciting for you to see that have a life come. I mean, it puts more excitement in your book, I imagine, right? I mean, that was a, it, was a, it was a bestseller anyway, but I mean, that's exciting, right, for you? Yeah, oh my God, it's thrilling for me. I love movies. I love television. The idea that this is going to be an eight-hour series makes me super happy. Great. Go ahead. Let's talk. You mentioned a playwright. You are a playwright as well. You turned The Midwives into a play, and, and it premiered in January. Is that right? Yeah, Bird Street Playhouse, bringing my beleaguered midwife to life. Um, was Ellen McLaughlin, who was the original Angel in, on Broadway, and Tony Kushner's Angels in America, um, Lee Sellers, Monique Robinson, Armie Schultz, just a great cast, and playing Anne Austin, the midwife's apprentice, my own daughter, The Amazing Grace Experience. I was so thrilled with David Saint's direction. And I, I mean, this is my second play, and I love playwriting. It's so much easier than being a novelist. Now, Arthur Miller... Or Larissa Fastros would say, I'm an idiot to say that. <laughs> but for me, it's easier to be a playwright because everyone else does the heavy lifting. You've got a director, you've got an amazing sound team, and a lighting team, and a set team. It's just, I mean, midwives at the George Street Play, I said 360 
light cues in a play that with intermission ran um, under two hours. It was just extraordinary. Wow. What was it like to see your daughter playing one of your characters? I've seen it before. Um, she was the disastrous young flight attendant in Grounded at 59th in Manhattan. She's great. I mean, I love working with her. That's one of the, the great blessings of my life. And, I mean, she started reading my audiobooks for Penguin Random House Audio back in 2014 when she was a sophomore in college. Um, she's just, she's the smartest, she's one of the two smartest readers I know, along with my lovely bride, Victoria, uh, three smartest readers, and my amazing editor, Jenny Jackson. Um, and so working with Gray's experience is great because no director is going to cast her because she's my daughter. She has to be right for the role, but if she's right for the role, it's fantastic. So she does your, the, the audiobooks. she doesn't do all of them, but she does quite a few of your audiobooks. For example, she didn't do The Red Lotus. The amazing Rebecca Lohman um, is the narrator for The Red Lotus. But she, for example, is Elena in The Flight Attendant. She is Alexandra, the Armenian sex slave in The Guest Room. She's Emily Shepard entirely in Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands. And she does other audiobooks too, not, not just mine. Right. Oh, that's so great. Wonderful. Well, I have to ask, um, I know we're getting close to, how's your, how are you doing? <laughs> we're, get, we're getting close to wrapping up so you can still be able to talk to your bride tonight and not be completely lost of a voice. Um, I have to ask, what's next for you? Are we going to be seeing another book? You, you, you write every day, is that right? I do, every day. But I'm not on tour, that is. I'm not traveling. But yeah, I write, I write every day. I write, you know, I wrote Easter. I wrote Christmas morning. I, I write every day. I love it. It makes me really, really happy. 11 months from now, you will see a new novel. It is historical fiction. It's called Hour of the Witch. It's set in 1662 Boston. It's about the first divorce in North America for domestic violence. And yes, there is a witch. Of course, there has to be if in that time period, right? In that time place. Well, I mean, the book was inspired when I saw this three-line reference in 1662 in the Court of Assistance for a woman being granted her divorce from her husband on the grounds of cruelty. And I was off and running. Wow. So that book is finished. It's, it it's, is completely done. So are, then do you know what you're working on next? Have you gotten the idea? I'm about 160 pages into a book set in 1964, in Hollywood and in um, the Serengeti when an Elizabeth Taylor type actress goes on a safari on her honeymoon and brings seven people in her entourage and it goes to hell fast. Sounds like another great one. I hope so. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you and reading your books. It's, it's such a pleasure to read them. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. Your questions are fantastic. This pandemic spring will become a renaissance summer. We will figure this out. Stay safe, wash hands, eat cake. That's number one New York Times bestselling author Chris Bajalian as we spoke with him in April of 2020 about his latest book, The Red Lotus, by publisher Kanaf Doubleday. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. 
just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Angie Weidinger. Editor was Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. ATC Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Author Podcast Executive Producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast Audio Editing by Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.